From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. Well, we're almost at the end of what's been a long election road. Labor is ahead in the polls, but the latest poll shows things are tightening. No one quite knows how the teal seats will play out. There's a lot of nail-biting all round. In this, our last podcast before polling day, we're talking to Frank Bongiorno, Professor of History at the Australian National University, and we're canvassing some of the broader features of this campaign and how it compares with elections of the past. Frank Bongiorno, is this the ultimate small target election? Well, it seems that way to me, Michelle. I mean, you know, there's been no tax debate, for instance, largely because Labor accepted the third tranche of of the government's uh, income tax cuts and neither side has a a taste, I think, for for serious tax reform, certainly nothing that they would raise in an election campaign. Uh, There's been almost no debate on industrial relations. We've heard little on the issue of asylum seekers, perhaps mercifully, Um, and and really, in honesty, in all honesty, not much on health or education either. Um, so, you know, there are a whole range of issues that you would imagine are very important to people's lives and which have historically been very important in election campaigns that, that have barely figured. Um, climate change has been an issue, but, uh, you know, then again, the differences between Labor and the Coalition are not enormous. I mean, they're both now committed to net zero by 2050. Uh, by 2030, you know, you've got the uh, Labor committed to 43% and I think the coalition about 26 or 28%, somewhere around there. So there's a bit of daylight between them, but not a great deal, um, which brings you back to issues like, I guess, uh, anti-corruption and integrity. Uh but of course, that's been very much the territory in this campaign of the teal independence. Uh, As indeed has climate change, I think. I think that's true, Michelle. Yeah, I think it's been much more of an issue for them and they've done a lot more work in placing that on the agenda during the campaign. So, yeah, in a lot of ways, I think it is very small target. Um, I mean, my theory for some time now, really, has been that Albanese is experimenting with what a number of Labor leaders of the opposition have been able to do in state and territory politics. And that's come from opposition really quite quietly with a, a relatively limited profile and, and, and not promising a, a vast amount. And we've seen uh, that happen repeatedly in state politics over, well, probably about three decades now. But we haven't seen Labor do it in federal politics ever, as far as I'm aware. I don't think there's any historical precedent for it. So it's very much, I think, an experiment on Albanese and Labor's part. Now, neither leader seems popular, but clearly Scott Morrison has lost a lot of his shine since the early period of the pandemic. How much do leaders as such matter in our elections or are people voting not just on leadership but on a a wider range of policies and impressions? Yeah, I think the latter's right, but they use leaders, I think, as a kind of proxy for judgments about policy. I mean, most voters won't go into um, the detail of of a party's policies. They'll have particular images that they'll 
take away from, uh, well, not just an election campaign, but the broader political process. And certainly the Australian election study, which is conducted at the ANU by my political science colleagues and has been done since, what, 1987 was the first one, um, it tends to find, I think, that, that leaders do, do matter um, because they're treated by voters as um, a kind of the carriers of the party image and particularly um, around judgments about competence in, in uh, economic management uh, in particular. Um, and, and, yeah, look, that poses problems for both uh, of the party or the major party leaders here. I mean, with Morrison, there have obviously been a number of leadership failures. So he's, he's had to rewrite the history of the pandemic as sort of one glorious success after another. And, and uh, also ignoring the fact, that a point you've made, Michelle, I know on, on um, Twitter, that, that um, ignoring the fact that this is a pandemic that's still very much in, happening and, and in which dozens of people are losing their lives each day. For Albanese, of course, the early slip-ups, or gaffes as people have called them, may well prove costly. I mean, they didn't show up uh, as far as one can tell in, in the, the polling. Um, you know, there weren't any major changes in support uh, for the parties or for the leaders uh, coming out of those early slip-ups. But again, if that has contributed to an impression that he's not on top of the job or that he lacks competence, that could well be problematic And uh, when we come round to, to voting on Saturday. Of course, uh, keeping in mind a lot of people have already voted. On this question of leadership, it's often said that we have moved to a more presidential system. But if we think back to, for example, Robert Menzies' campaigns, were they presidential in their way in that Menzies was obviously a very uh, dominant figure? I think they were in a lot of ways. I mean, particularly once you get to the mid-50s and Menzies' uh, ascendancy in Australian politics was was so great. I mean, you know, the landslide victories of of 1955 and 58, and then again in in 1963, although not 1961, which was much closer. So I think there was quite a lot of emphasis on uh, the figure of of Menzies, and certainly, you know, as far as we can tell, we don't have kind of survey data that that you know we have these days. But as far as we can tell. Voters did treat Menzies as as very much, you know, the the face of of the government, the face of the Liberal Party, perhaps the face of the coalition um, when they came to to vote. So his authority and I suppose his charisma um, mattered a a great deal, I think. Um, Yeah, there was a lot of talk about um, a shift towards more presidential style campaigning. I think particularly once television came into its own really in the 1970s in election campaigns, which with the turning point perhaps being the It's Time election in, in 1972, where, you know, if you look back at the video that accompanied the song, you know, it's as if Gough and Margaret are, are sort of going to, to run the country like the Roosevelt's. It comes back very much. There's a lot of stuff in there on, you know, images of, of, of Gough, for instance, or Gough Whitlam, you know, from, from you know, childhood right through to the present. And, and so I think that personalisation is important. Um, and it, it's been very much, I think, you know, certainly Morrison's approach. I mean, he began the campaign when he announced the election that Sunday, telling voters that it was all about you, but it's striking that it's become increasingly about Morrison, um, even in his own approach, you know, and, and in a lot of ways the election is coming down to a kind of referendum, I think, on on his performance and perhaps his persona as well. Um, Albanese isn't able to cut a figure in the same way. That's true of 
opposition leaders generally, but I think it would be broadly um, reasonable to say he's not in your face in the way that Morrison really, I think, relishes and, and which was, of course, very much a part of his 2019 success. So just uh, unpicking this leadership question a bit more, what kind of image do you think each leader has tried to portray in this campaign and what kind of image has come out, as it were? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, Morrison, I think, has been quite different from the 2019 image. I think that he's tended to... um, you know, present himself as a kind of can-do, hands-on sort of um, leader, different from the everyman or daggy dad, I think was a term, might have been Phil Curry's originally, I can't remember. But anyway, certainly that image of the sort of um, blokey uh, baseball cap wearing everyman who, you know, turns up at your local pub to, to down a a schooner and and heads off to the the rugby league. Uh, I think he made much of that uh, in 2019 and also the family man image. I think there's been much less of that this time round and I think that's got a lot to do with just the amount of lead in the saddlebag that he's he's carrying and it's absolutely clear from all of the context of the way in which the campaigns are happening on both sides from things that happened before the campaign, I think back to the appearance of the Morrisons on uh, Channel 9 60 Minutes, that that image of Morrison as having gone missing um, during the bushfires and having turned up in Hawaii remains implanted in a lot of voters' minds and it's something that he's had to negotiate and work his way around right through this this campaign. I I would be astonished if um, the, the focus groups aren't telling the parties that, that that image has still been very damaging for Morrison. So he's had to present himself as a as a very much a kind of can-do leader who's going to get on with the job, you know, the kinds of phrases he uses. Um, Albanese, I mean, I think it's been a softer, perhaps even a kind of caring image. The term care itself is is often used, I think, on, on the Labor side. Um, that's not uncommon, I think, amongst uh, parties of the centre-left internationally and globally. Um, you know, that sort of softer, caring image has become increasingly, um, you know, popular, I think, uh, in contrast, in a way, with what we saw many years ago, where I think Labor's emphasis was much more on security, on providing security for people, whereas I think that there's been a shift, almost a kind of feminisation towards a notion of care. And that, you know, reflects, I guess, the, the greater support, perhaps, of women too, for parties of the centre-left, including Labor, the gender gap is really quite different from what it was 40, 50 years ago where um, men were more inclined to vote for Labor and, and women for the coalition. That that has been reversed, obviously, in recent decades, and that's, I think, finding its reflection in um, the, the rhetoric of the, of the Labor Party. Of course, simply the fact that, that um, women now comprise, well, about, I think, half the parliamentary Labor Party compared with about a quarter on the coalition side. Um, and I think Albanese's... Um, engagement with the whole issue of wages has been really interesting. I mean, I think that was a really important gesture towards kind of traditional labour values and concerns. Again, some in the media tried to present that or frame it as some sort of gaffe or error, um, but in retrospect, it doesn't look like that. Um, uh, If it was a turning point in the campaign, and I doubt it, um, but if it, it, you know, was of significance in this campaign, I actually think it, it... gave some ballast and some moral purpose to a candidature uh, that up to then it seemed to lack it a bit. So I, I think that was quite significant in, in 
um, obviously dealing with an issue that matters to many voters, but also I think in connecting Albanese and the Labor Party some, to some much you know, more long-term concerns of, of the ALP. Well, is this uh, emphasis on issues of uh, inflation and wages, which has been one of the themes through the campaign uh, with people really feeling the pinch in the uh, cost of living increases they face, uh, are we seeing in this something of a, a return to the issues of the 70s and the 80s? It is, I think, Michelle, in some ways, but, you know, without the policy, it's sort of minus the policy. So, yes, wages are on the agenda, but, you know, you sort of have to ask, well, where's Labor's industrial relations policy that's going to really deal with this problem of, of flat or stagnant wages and, and, you know, declining real wages even? Um, it, it's not as if... Uh, you know, uh, Labor's talking about strengthening unions, and it won't do that because it would worry about being wedged on the issue of of union power, always a, a vulnerability for Labor, even in this day and age where uh, the, the unions, for the most part, um, don't seem to be very powerful at all. Although, um, you know, I do recall that the coalition tried to make play, as, as usual, with the building unions quite early in the campaign. But um, the, the same on inflation too. I mean, uh, people are recognising cost of living as an issue and a problem, but I, I don't really see any proposals for major policy or institutional changes to deal with uh, that. I mean, on Morrison's side, he presents it as basically just a result of international factors, and on the Labor side, they're just trying to pin it on on Morrison. Um, so, you know, in past election campaigns, going back, for instance, to you know, nineteen. Uh, uh, 82 would be, also 83 would be a good example where Labor came to office, you know, with, uh, you know, a, a kind of a set of ideas about policies and institutions, the Prices and Incomes Accord, which was to deal with these kinds of issues of wages and inflation and indeed employment. But we don't see, I think, anything much uh, at the moment. There's more of a policy vacancy when the parties deal with these issues. At the start of the campaign, I think we thought that a big theme would be defence national security issues. And then, of course, the deal between the Solomons and uh, China was formalised and there was a lot of criticism from Labor against the government for not being able to head that off. And you sort of got the impression that after that, the whole security issue faded away. Is that right or does it form a backdrop do you think, in people's minds? And aren't our elections normally anyway dominated by domestic issues? Uh, obviously, 66 uh, is an exception to that, but what's the pattern overall? Yeah, I think that's right, Michelle. I mean, um, we'll know after the election, again, when, when you know, the Australian election study gives us some data on, you know, what they call, the political scientists use the term saliency, don't they? You know, what, what were the salient issues for voters? What were the issues that voters saw as important and which had the potential to move their votes? Um, and look, I'd, I'd be surprised if we find out that these issues of foreign policy uh, did much of that. And I think, you know, you're, you're right historically too, that, that um, you know, there is the the classic image of the car key election and, and there were signs in the months leading up to this campaign that, that Morrison and the coalition wanted, you know, were kind of willing a car key election when they questioned Labor's credentials, particularly in dealing with China. But 
I don't think you can manufacture a khaki election. I mean, the original was the British election of 1900 and, and it was over the Boer War or the South African War. And as you say, the classic case in Australia is really 1966, the so-called Vietnam election. Uh, we had another one in 2001, uh, which was really, I suppose, a combination of 9-11 and Tampa being the security issues, but different in the sense that it, it bore, I think, much more um, obviously on matters of domestic policy um, and, and domestic security. So, yeah, look, it's interesting. I mean, China um, would be an issue for, for Chinese-Australian voters, I imagine, of whom there are many, and that's that, that will be something that it will be really interesting to look at on election night. Um, I, I doubt whether, I mean, the, the nature of polling that we're seeing isn't going to pick up if there's a major movement there. I mean, there's a bit of data floating around that suggests that... Um, Chinese-Australian voters have been put off by, you know, the hard line of the coalition and the hard rhetoric of the coalition, but, you know, I'm not aware of how authoritative that sort of uh, stuff is at this stage, but we'll, we'll have a better sense, I guess, when we look at those electorates where those voters matter. But, yeah, the, look, the Solomons issue um, was raised particularly by Labor early in the campaign as a way of quest questioning the coalition's credentials, but I think in the end it wasn't probably in the interest of either party to go too far down this path. They both have vulnerabilities around it. And I think you can, um, as I think you were hinting, you can look a bit out of touch with domestic issues if you're always banging on about these foreign policy type things, as important as that they might be. So, I mean, I think here of uh, the, the Labor government of 1995, you know, si signing a security deal with Indonesia late in that year, just a few months before the 1996 election, I mean, if anyone thinks that that gave any advantages to Labor in the 1996 election, I suspect they're not looking hard enough because I think it was utterly irrelevant. And it, it may even have contributed to a sense that Paul Keating was, you know, interested in the big picture but out of touch with the kind of everyday concerns of voters. And I think that's always been a danger for Morrison in the current climate, that he could look a bit that way. But I think he's probably on the whole managed to avoid it because the issue, as you said, has tended to fade away. Now, how do you interpret the teal independent movement? Do you think this is a, a permanent change in the system? Will they last or will that depend on how well they actually do at the election? And do you see uh, comparisons that have been drawn with the Australian Democrats and before that the Liberal movement, breakaways from the Liberal Party essentially? Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. I mean, they do have a slight third-party quality about them. And, and in a lot of ways, they're actually appealing to the same um, kinds of cohorts, although those cohorts now are much bigger than they were back in the 1970s, for instance, when the Australian Democrats emerged, all those earlier manifestations such as the Australia Party and, and the Liberal Reform Movement and so on. And, and, you know, it is to educated professionals and also women uh, who, who appear, you know, to have been very important, I think, to the, the, the Australian Democrats. So I think that's a good comparison. The Democrats also managed to mobilise a lot of people who really hadn't been much involved in politics previously, you know, they hadn't been attracted to the major parties or getting involved in, in that sort of thing. And, and the Democrats managed to engage the sympathies of people like that who sometimes join branches and involve themselves. Um, so I think that there is um, that quality uh, about them. Um, it is, in a lot of ways, it does look like the story of the campaign, but you're right. I mean, if they perform uh, below expectation or below par 
on Saturday, I mean, perhaps a lot of that talk will seem to be overblown. But that said, I mean, I think it's hard to miss the importance of the mobilisation that we've seen. It's hard to miss the importance of Climate 200, which has operated like one of those political action committees, really, in the United States, um, which I don't think we've seen uh, in quite the same way here. Um, They've also just been very important, I think, in unbalancing the Liberal Party. The coalition's had to fight multiple campaigns, but broadly speaking, it's had to fight two, and, and one's against Labor for, for you know, control of government, um, you know, who will govern, but the other is against the independents in all of these seats where they seem to pose a, 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 a fairly strong challenge to Liberal incumbents. So... Um, you know, I, th- I think it, it, there's been a sense, I think, of, of almost demoralisation, perhaps that's too strong a word, but a, a sense that the um, momentum behind these candidates has actually been a kind of standing reminder of some of the things that the Liberal Party in particular hasn't been doing well. I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways it's also a sense you're on the Labor Party and, and certainly on the National Party, but I think particularly for the Liberals, given the, the kind of, in some instances, family liberal pedigree of some of the candidates, like Allegra Spender um, and Kate Cheney over in Western Australia, and, and just the general sense that in, in a, a world of 30 or 40 years ago, or perhaps even more recently, these would have been liberal wets, these would have been liberal moderates. Um, and I think that has been very damaging to the Liberal Party's image and perhaps also its, its kind of confidence as a, as a political party. Are we at a high point of disillusionment with the major parties? Because what we're seeing are very low primary votes for the majors in the opinion polls, and people really seem turned off the the big parties these days. Has there been a, a similar period in the past, and do you think that sort of disillusionment, again, will last? Yeah, look, I don't think we've seen anything like the, the situation of the last... Uh, 10 years, I guess it is, about 10 to 15 years. I mean, we know now that at the last couple of elections, about um, one in four voters in the House of Representatives uh, voted for an independent or minor party. Now, you know, there were particular periods, the 1940s springs to mind, where we did see quite a lot of independent candidates, but that was associated with the, the kind of fragmentation of an old party, the United Australia Party and the formation of a new one. Um, So you did get minor party and independent candidates there for for a while, but very different context to what we're seeing here. And I think the independents, and to some extent the Greens too, um, are essentially slotting into a a sense of declining political trust, one of whose manifestations is this shift of of votes. I mean, the, the lifelong rusted on voters still exist, but there's far fewer of them than there used to be. And again, we have good statistics on this for the Australian election study. Uh, I think, um, you know, not terribly long ago, about 70% of voters, this is, you know, say 15, 20 years ago, about 70% of voters basically voted at each election much as they had throughout their lives. They didn't change from one election to another. That figure at the last election was 39%. Um, so that means that, that, that there's a growing number of voters whose support is biddable and, and the independents and minor parties are benefiting from that kind of loosening of the hold of the major parties over, um, uh, 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 over voters. And, you know, if we, we, we go back, I mean, the, the major part of the three major parties ha- had something like a, 
almost a, a, a kind of monopoly over the vote, um, really until the relatively recent past. But that, that has certainly shifted enormously in the last few years. Can we turn finally to uh, a couple of uh, issues about the media? We now have social media in the 24-hour news cycle. These have been transformational, haven't they, in terms of campaigns, for the better or for the worse? Oh, look, I always see more means of communication and political information as a better thing. I mean, the, the issue of disinformation is problematic. It's not confined to social media. It's not um, entirely novel, but it, it is pretty clear that social media is a good place for misleading people if you've got a mind and the resources to do it. And Facebook in particular, which is far and away the most important of them, it's quite easy for people like us to to think of Twitter as, as terribly important. But in fact, Facebook is where a lot of the action is going on and has been at, at, at you know, the various elections in, in recent years. Um, and, and, and so there's almost a kind of, you wouldn't call it a separate campaign, but a, a really important sort of dimension to the campaign that probably passes a lot of us by unless you're constantly going in. And even if you are, you're not necessarily going into the sites that um, many voters are going into and, and getting all sorts of um, often weird and wonderful information. Um, so, yeah, look, um, social media is a very important factor. It's also Twitter in particular provides a running commentary on media framing and coverage of the campaign. That's been a feature of several elections now. And, and it, it actually matters quite a lot, I think, because it, it's um, providing a, a kind of, again, a different context for the reporting on the campaign. There's been a lot of defensiveness, it has to be said, sometimes justified, sometimes not so justified from more traditional media about the things that are said on, on particularly on, on Twitter. But it, it is quite important now, I think, in, in um, you know, some of it's abusive and, and, and rightly objectionable, but some of it, of course, is simply uh, people... Uh, providing feedback and commentary in ways that, of course, wasn't possible until um, uh, social media emerged. In general, how do you think the uh, more traditional media has performed in this campaign? I think it's been a very mixed bag. I mean, some p- parts of the of, of news, of, of the Murdoch media, have been extremely partisan, although that's not entirely new. I mean, we saw uh, heavy partisanship uh, in a number of elections over the last decade in favour of the, the coalition. It's particularly true of the the tabloids and especially, I think, the the Sydney one, the Daily Telegraph, but also, I think, the Herald Sun. There are other parts of the Murdoch empire that are, are less partisan. Um, the, the online service, was it news.com, um, is, I think, more balanced. Um, look, I, I think there is a lot of scepticism and concern about that now very large media conglomerate, um, you know, Nine, um, which, of course, incorporates the old Fairfax empire. I mean, he's very, very powerful and it stretches across different um, uh, media, different forms. Uh, you know, it has a, lib- a former Liberal treasurer as its, as its chair um, and, you know, how relevant that is is debatable, but, you know, it, it is certainly generating some uh, concern and scepticism. There's a lot of media concentration in this country and, in particular, I think the entrenchment of, of, of the Murdoch empire is, is a major factor in elections that I think we can't uh, ignore. Um, there are other media outlets, of course. I mean, the ABC often looks a little under pressure. Um, uh, it, it has a, diff- a very different set of obligations and a charter that, that demands um, uh, certain types of behaviours that are not demanded of the co- commercial media. But 
it's under a lot of pressure because it has been bullied, I think, by the coalition over a number of years. Um, but there've been some, there's obviously been some very very good reportage uh, as well. I think you know a lot of conscientious journalists are trying to to raise issues that are important. We've seen some excellent, I think, television interviews. I thought the third. I didn't see the first of the debates. I was unimpressed by the second of the debates. The third of them, I thought, um, was was well handled and certainly a very uh, impartial performance by those running it. I mean, primarily Mark Riley from Channel Seven. So a mixed bag, I'd have to say. But, yeah, look, there needs to be some soul-searching. I think some of the the framing of particular moments in the campaign has been very wrong-headed and misjudged, and I, I go back to the whole issue of Albanesian wages. I mean, that was immediately announced by a number of, of journalists in mainstream media as being some sort of great gaffe or error. But I think within a couple of days it became very clear that the economists basically... Uh, didn't see it as, as, as terribly problematic, uh, that voters, there was no sort of signs of, of the polling, you know, moving against Albanese over it. Uh, there was very little effort, I think, to get trade union voices in, in uh, the reporting of that. And so I think that was an example of misjudgment um, and, and no doubt one could think of others. Frank Bongiorno, thank you very much for talking with us today, for your insights and the context of some history as well. Now, that's all for our last pre-election podcast. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you might also like The Conversation's new election podcast, Below the Line, hosted by former ABC presenter John Fain. To listen and subscribe, search Below the Line on theconversation.com.au or on your favourite podcast app. And also, of course, on Saturday and Sunday, don't forget to look at our site and follow our coverage of the election. Next week, we'll be back with a post-election podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy, and goodbye. Have a great election weekend. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.